We're here to talk about the 2009-10 season, which is the 40th anniversary season of the NAC. And I thought we'd jump right in and talk about the theater part of the season. And we're opening in October with The Drowsy Chaperone. Yes, we are. And, you know, I honestly can't think of a better way to celebrate our 40th anniversary with The Drowsy Chaperone, which is an extraordinary musical comedy by Lisa Lambert, Greg Morrison, Don McKellar, uh, Bob Martin that celebrates everything about the great musical comedies of the 1920s and 30s. This is a show full of mistaken identity, uh, lovers who have an enormous conflict but are are resolved to each other in the end and get married at the end. There's tap dancing, there's showgirls. uh, Everything when you think of the 20s is embodied in this show. And it has a really unique and fun twist in it in that there's also in the show uh, a character called Man in the Chair. And he is a lover of Broadway musicals. And so the show takes place in his apartment. And he talks about the blues. He talks about uh, sadness in his life and and what is the tonic for it? What is the remedy for it? Uh, and his favorite musical of all times is one called The Drowsy Chaperone. And in the show, we watch that show come to life in his apartment. And uh, I love it because uh, it, it celebrates what the theater does. It transports us from uh, the concerns and heartaches of our own lives and celebrates the joy of love, the joy of what human beings can do, the joy of tap dancing, the joy of singing. And it's a, a rollicking, celebratory, musical comedy of the first degree. And uh, I think our audiences are going to love it. It's uh, also a great Canadian story. It's a, a Canadian show that um, is the first Canadian musical to win the Tony Award for Best in Musical in 2006. It won five Tony Awards, actually. And so it's an enormous success story. And we're very, very proud to be presenting the Vancouver Playhouse production of this uh, with the Citadel Theatre in Edmonton. And uh, we've lined up uh, a cast of the best musical theatre performers in the country. Jay Brizot plays the man in chair, and you're going to recognize Jay from his many, many performances uh, in television and film. Uh, was on X-Files for many, many years, but he also is a, an acclaimed musical theatre performer, having played um, Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. And he also uh, played the role of um, uh, Irma Turnblatt in Hairspray, the uh, John Travolta part he he played in Canada in the the Broadway production. He he's a fantastic fantastic performer. And Nora McClellan, Tom Allison, Susan Gilmore. The list goes on. It's an incredible cast. A big splashy celebratory show that uh, will take your heart away. It's quite a way to kick off the season, especially um, part of the reading. This started out as a fringe show, and it was a um, written as a wedding present, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely true. The show began over 10 years ago, and it was written as a wedding gift to uh, um, uh, some actors in Toronto, and it was performed at the Rivoli Cafe 
a tiny little 100-seat house. And in fact, the names of the characters in The Drowsy Chaperone are the names of the couple whose wedding was being celebrated in this play. And all of these super talented guys got together and put on this show. And it, uh, from there, went on to the Fringe, to Theatre Pass Marai, then the Mervishes picked it up, and it grew and grew and grew. And as musicals do, they're reworked, rewritten, new numbers are put in. And there it is 10 years later on Broadway winning the Tony for Best New Musical. It's it's a, a kind of story that would only happen in a musical. Uh, it's a, a, a great part of the myth of that show. And... Uh, you'll see uh, uh, in the show how infectious it is, and uh, it's not surprising to hear that story. That's great. It's a great way to kick off the season. Yeah. The next production in our theater season is uh, a holiday classic. Uh, We're bringing A Christmas Carol for the first time to uh, the NAC stage. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is synonymous with everything that's Christmas, I think, Uh, from its reminder to us that, you know, Christmas isn't a holiday to be celebrated one day of the year, but to carry in our hearts all 365. And... um, it's a, a, a beautiful classic story for families that reminds us of the potential for people to change, people to grow, and the value of love and family and generosity uh, in a world that can be harsh and uh, difficult and cold. And we've been asked to do this play for many, many years, and this year, We were able to do it in a very special way, and I'm thrilled. Um, We're going to be doing a version of the play that is right from Charles Dickens. And, you know, it was a huge success in 1843 when it was originally written. And two years later, Dickens did his own reading version of the story where he adapted his own novella and he went on a lecture circuit tour. Can you imagine? And he played all of the parts. And um, so I got my hands on a copy of this script and it's it's beautiful because it retains all of the great narrative prose of Dickens, but all the characters of the Fezziwigs and Bob Cratchit and his family with Tiny Tim and Jacob Marley and all the ghosts are all there and beautifully um, framed in a, in a two-hour context. So we're using that as the basis for our script. And um, we are going to do a production set in the 1840s using the Dickens text with a marvelous company of 20 actors um, featuring... Uh, Stephen Wimett as Ebenezer Scrooge. And audiences will remember Stephen from his spectacular performance in I Am My Own Wife um, a couple of years ago. And Stephen's also been a member of the Stratford Festival Company uh, for close to 20 years. Uh, so we're, we're really bringing a, a big classical sense to this story. And um, it's, uh, it really does have something for everyone. I remember as a child loving A Christmas Carol because it was scary. (laughs) It's a ghost story. 
and the beginning, you know, in the dark, dark and foggy streets of London and these, you know, spooky kind of characters and ghosts that appear give the transformation and the joy and the reunion uh, on Christmas Day. It's it's very special appeal because you've really come from somewhere harsh, so you really appreciate the joy that is the resolution of that fantastic, fantastic tale. You're going to be directing this version that we'll have on stage. And when we were talking about it before, as you said, like, obviously we were talking about the Alistair Sim version when we were talking about film before. Yeah. And I know exactly what you mean because that was part of it, was the first (laughs) time the ghosts come out or you see, uh, depending on, I always got scared with the the ghost of the future not yet seen or how yet to come. Now, when we were talking about this before, you said like sometimes in plays and films, it starts, it doesn't start exactly where this text that you were taking Mm -hmm. from Dickens does Mm -hmm. because it beginning starts at a funeral. It's starting to go from That's there. Right. A lot of people avoid that. Uh-huh. Well, I think that you've got to remember, too, that uh, Dickens was a very strong social activist and believed very strongly in social reform and in charity and philanthropy of all kinds. And so the story is an allegory, um, both about the values and meanings of Christmas, but what it can do to meaningfully impact on um uh, social injustice. And I, I think it's so, so timely in, you know, our age now where we, you know, I'm terrified opening the newspaper every day. What do the holidays do? do? Are they just an escape for us to get away from our problems? Or is there a key perhaps in them uh, to help us live a better life and uh, live uh, more peaceably with each other? And that's what I really love in it. And uh it's one of the five archetypal stories for me in my life. When I all the time, and actors tease me about this because, you know, we can be doing like the Scottish play, and I'll say, this scene is really like the scene where Scrooge confronts Marley about that, because to me, it's uh, it's it's in everyone's consciousness. And uh, that's a, a great part of the plays we're doing in the 40th, are plays that I think really live inside us and uh, stories that uh, we share and are, are really worth being told. Yeah, I read a couple of articles about when we were discussing this, and they said that when he wrote the story, it's been credited with bringing back what the holidays meant at, at that time because they were kind of being left aside. It was one of those. It, it was yeah. there, but it wasn't celebrated as much. In the, and the story actually helped bring back that celebration because of yeah. everything that the character goes through. So it's going to be quite magical to see on the stage. It really will. And, and in our 40th, I think of it as a, a big, shiny Christmas present for our audience. We're going to do it on the full-thrust stage um, a big company in period costume. It's uh, going to be a very generous and uh, heartfelt way to enjoy the holidays and introduce uh, young people to the theater. I can't think of a better way. The third production in our theater season is uh, a work that came from last season's The Ark. Yep. And it's Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children. Mm -hmm. Mother Courage and Her Children has been 
uh, lauded it as being one of the greatest plays of the 20th century. And it's written by German poet and playwright Bertolt Brecht. And it, and it um, is the story of Anna Fearling, who is a, a woman who has a canteen wagon that she follows the troops across the battlefields of Europe during the Thirty Years' War in the early 17th century um, to make a profit. She sells boots and beer and sausages and belt buckles. And her philosophy is uh, that you can't do anything to fight war, so you might as well make as much money from it as you can. However, over the course of the play, we see what the cost of her advocacy of war is as we learn how she loses all three of her children. And uh, it's a really, really uh, beautiful and masterful work. Um, it was written in 1938 when Brecht was in exile, having been um, kicked out of Germany. And uh, there's a bitter irony to the play, which in 1938, Brecht wrote it with the idea that the message of the play would caution people and forestall the Second World War. And um, the play was enormously popular in Sweden. Uh, he rewrote the play in 1946 uh, when he was in exile in the United States and then revised it again in the early 50s when he returned to Germany after the war. And it became the most popular play to be presented by Brecht with the Berliner Ensemble. And he said, you know, I wrote this play to forestall the war, and yet its greatest success was after the devastation of the, that war. And um, when a critic asked him, what does that mean? He said, well, it, it means, I guess, people don't learn very well. And uh, I find that very, very poignant in, in reference to this play. Uh, it's a play about courage, uh, the pointlessness of it, the her heroism of it, the futility of it. How, what do you do to fight? How do you resist? How do you take on forces that are so huge like that? And um, it's a big play. Um, it has 12 songs in it. Uh, and the songs are written by Brecht himself, by Paul Dessau, who collaborated with Brecht many times. And um, I'm sure our audience is going to recognize some of the songs by Kurt Weill. Brecht was a genius at reworking material, reinventing material. And so there's a song that was from the Three Penny Opera that he put right into Mother Courage because it suited him so well. Another song that people know from Happy End, Surabaya Johnny by Kurt Weill, that appears in Mother Courage as well, sung by a, a character, Yvette Poitier, who's one of the prostitutes that's following along the camps. It's a, a heroic, large uh, tale of adventure and personal devastation is also a very smart critique of war and the place of not the big generals and captains and uh, power brokers, but the small people, the, the common people who are affected by it. Um, that's Brecht's perspective on it. And it's a really fitting masterwork, uh, landmark play to uh, be a part of our 40th anniversary. 
Well, I remember during the reading um, being moved by a few items, especially one of the when you were talking about the version that we were doing the reading at, um, mm-hmm. some of the lines that differed from his original text. And when you heard that, there's a definite, like, how you feel when you hear those lines that are different. When you try to, I don't know if you want to say he pieced them up a bit, but there was mm-hmm. some of Breck's views were obviously changed a little bit in that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's exciting about this production is the actor that we have in the role, Rather Courage. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the great joys of being an artistic director is when you find a play that is can be married to an actor. And uh, we have got Tanya Jacobs to play Mother Courage for us. And um, audiences, of course, will remember Tanya as Lady Wishford in The Way of the World, as Winnie in Happy Days, in John Mighton's The Little Years. And this is a part that really celebrates everything Tanya is as an actress, uh, uh, a very gifted comedian, uh, uh, a sensitive uh, tragedian at the same time. Uh, here she'll be singing and dancing too. So it, uh, it is a great role for Tanya, and we're thrilled to have her here uh, to play Mother Courage for us. It's, uh, it's amazing, though, a play that was written that like, speaks very clearly for what's going on today as well. And um, there's the New York Times that said, if there's ever a time for Mother Courage to come back, now is the time, so. Yep, that's right. Because uh, Brecht, uh, he he gives no easy answers. You know, often the play is described as an anti-war play, and and certainly its position is pro-peace. And, uh, but uh, he exposes a lot of the contradictions, a lot of the ways that, we allow war to continue the way war is necessary. Um, it's a very thorough and complete examination of that subject. The fourth production in our theater season is a world premiere Canadian work, Mrs. Dexter and Her Daily. Yes, by Joanna McClellan Glass. And Premiering new Canadian plays is a very important part of what we do at the NAC. And we're very lucky this year to have a new play by one of Canada's most respected and popular playwrights, Joanna Glass. Um, Of course, NAC audiences will remember uh, the production of Trying that was produced by the English Theatre three or four seasons ago. And this is um, a new play by the same author. And, you know, each play this year we've tried to think of as a, a way it contributed to the 40th, how it celebrated um, theatre that we have done and theatre that we're doing today. And having a play by Joanna Glass is a great, great uh, privilege. And this will be the Canadian premiere of the work. It's a co-production with the Arts Club Theatre in Vancouver. And um, when looking for a director of a new play, uh, it's a very special relationship. And um, we couldn't really think of anyone better to direct this play than Marty Meriden. And Marty Meriden is coming back to the NEC for the 40th, directing the play. And um, it's a play, it's called Mrs. Dexter and Her Daily. And it's about Mrs. Dexter, who's... uh, Uh, a woman in her mid-60s. She lives in Rosedale. And she's had a daily maid uh, 
in that house for most of her married life. At the point of departure of the play, uh, her husband and she have split up, and it's the last day of work for her daily maid. And what's really interesting about the play is you're told this story of this day from two perspectives, one from Mrs. Dexter and the other from her daily maid, Peg Randall. And uh, Peg is from Cape Breton, uh, has lived as a working housekeeper in Toronto, uh, did not go to all of the schools Mrs. Dexter did, is not a Rosedale matron, but lives in that world through her perspective um, as a worker. And so you learn about that day from these two shared but very different points of view. And uh, we are so, so excited to announce that we have Nicola Cavendish, who has uh, been here at the NAC, and Shirley Valentine uh, for the pleasure of seeing her again. Nikki Cavendish is going to play the role of Peg Randall the Daily. And the great and marvelous Fiona Reed, who uh, has been here in Humble Boy, Hamlet, many shows, is going to play Mrs. Dexter. These are the kind of actors that, if this were a one-person show, one of them would be in it. To have both of these women in the same show is unbelievable. It is two of Canada's greatest actresses uh, working with each other and telling this story of connection and disconnection, of friendship and employment. And a thing I love about it is, you know, Mrs. Dexter often feels in this play that uh, she now has to face life alone, that um, she's examining, you know, what was her marriage? What is the relationship to her kids? What is her future at the age of 65? And really recognizes that perhaps the greatest friend she had was her daily, who's now leaving. And uh, for Peg, it's a totally different story of finally being able to retire, finally being able to get an apartment of her own, finally moving in with a, a friend of hers. I don't want to give away too much. But it's a, an incredible story about women, about friendship, about class. And uh, speaking of class, it is the classiest group of women assembled. Uh, Joanna Glass, Marty Meriden, Nikki Cavendish, Fiona Reed. Uh, it's it's dynamite. And uh, it's a, a very modern story and a contemporary one that I think uh, will be very, very moving for everyone uh, who sees it. There's quite a bit of humor in it too, actually. But the the thing I like is how it's set up differently. And we've talked about this before in meetings that it's you, you hinted at like if there was a one woman show, they would be yeah. playing it. But at times it kind of is, which is very well, interesting how it's the script. Joanna's play with perspective. She's very clever in the way in which she uses direct address, which is what we call, you know, monologues where the character speaks directly to us. And certainly it's something that's used in many plays. But Joanna gives you a sort of privileged, special relationship with the character where you feel that she's speaking only to you. And so in the first act, we learn everything about this story all through Peg Randall. 
as though it were almost a one-person show about Peg Randall. And you get a very, you know, you don't really get to know Mrs. Dexter. In Act Two, then you hear this same day, the same story told from Mrs. Dexter's point of view. And it's funny, you know, because we all know in friendships and family and work that um, how we perceive something is uh, carries with it different degrees of truth. And, and you're right. It is so funny. These are strong women. Joanna writes really strong, funny, witty uh, people. And uh, this play is no exception. And uh, there's nothing wallflower about these two gals. They take life on with uh, full vigor and full energy. And so it, it, it is. It's very, very funny as well. We close our theater season with a Shakespearean comedy, The Comedy of Errors which he will be directing. The Comedy of Errors is one of my favorite plays of Shakespeare. It's an early play of his, and it was inspired by a Roman comedy called The Menachme. And I'll tell you, Shakespeare improved on that one with the title alone. <laughs> and um, But the play by Plautus is very, uh, you know, in, in shows like uh, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, you know, uh, merchants and their wives and infidelities, that kind of thing. But what is so marvelous about Shakespeare is he takes a conventional idea and through his genius reinterprets it into something that we now call Shakespearean. And the comedy of errors is is no exception. It's, it's a comedy about a family that has been split apart uh, through a business deal and a shipwreck. And so at birth, um, two twin boys are separated, and the mother and the father are separated. But as only Shakespeare could do, it so happened that at the same time, their servants gave birth to two twin servant boys who were also separated at birth. And the play takes place 33 years later, when the father arrives in the town of Ephesus seeking out his other son and the other twin of the servant. And um, he, uh, we are informed quickly that uh, he's from Syracuse, and Syracusians and Ephesians uh, are mortal enemies through business, and any Syracusian found in Ephesus will be killed. And thus our story begins where the father is given 24 hours to find his lost twin son and twin servant, or he will be killed. Stakes right away. And uh, we then watch, uh, lo and behold, that the one of the twins lives there in Ephesus and is married, and so does the servant. And the other twin happens to arrive that day in search of his lost brother. And through a comedy of accidents, errors, and circumstance, we see how those uh, brothers and ultimately the whole family is reunited and saved. And, you know, there's a, a beautiful moment at the end of Shakespearean comedy when the twins are reunited and through an accident, uh, 
uh, all is resolved and everyone gets married at the end. And sometimes, you know, we can think of that in our own age as being uh, implausible or or just a, a property of convention. But I find it really, really powerful. Uh, and and our goal in this production is to make it as plausible and believable as we can. Because uh, that reunion is a really beautiful aspect of the play and, and gives the play its, its real romance. It's a very romantic comedy about identity, about love, um, and, and kind of, too, about uh, the seven-year itch. Uh, a lot of Shakespearean comedies end in marriages, but this is one of the three or four plays that he wrote where the couples are married at the beginning. And it's a couple that are about seven years into their marriage. Uh, things aren't quite as uh, hot and passionate as they were when they wed. They're they're questioning, you know, what have they made the right choice? Are they living the right with the right person? And the play reaffirms that yes, indeed, they have, and rekindles um, the love of the marriages and the families involved. So we will be doing this as a co-production with Centaur Theater in Montreal. Yeah, and you were talking about there's a number of actors from Montreal, and it's also a little bit of a inspiration from uh, sections of Montreal. Well, yes, because I've always, whenever I've talked about this play, um, I've always likened it to the city of Montreal. Now, an Elizabethan audience would have really enjoyed the Ephesian setting because there are many, many references in this play to Paul's letters to the Ephesians, and. The thing about those letters, and they're where Paul would go and preach about uh, how husbands should treat their wives, how parents should treat their children, how servants and, and masters should behave accordingly. It's all about order. But the Ephesians were famous for being the most unruly people in Christendom, the most impossible people to Christianize or teach order to. So there was a joke in that that you know, Paul goes to the wildest place in the world and tries to frame order and convention. And so I, I, I sort of think about it uh, when we make playful comparisons of Toronto to Montreal. And w what I so love about living in Ottawa is we get the best of both of those worlds. And I thought of Montreal immediately with the play because that spirit of adventure, of a new surprise lurking around every corner of the kind of hedonism of the city and uh and yet the uh, uh you know the the desire for for order and balance that is also part of life too uh felt really well suited and so Roy Surrett, who's the artistic director of the Centaur Theater love the idea of this Montreal infusion. And our, our production will be set in Ephesus and Syracuse as the play, but uh, it's very informed by the spirit of Montreal. The audience, you'll recognize things, and uh, we're, we're letting that uh, sort of inform the aesthetic of the production and, and its visuals. Sounds like a really fun way to end the season. Yes. You know, this season, I really thought a lot about creating a, a larger story or journey as the audience moves from one play to the next. And one thing audiences have told me is they really love variety in the plays that we program. And that was so 
first and foremost in mind this year. So there's a sort of story in opening with a big musical comedy that celebrates the theater and life and forget your troubles, come on, get happy. And then a play that looks at a holiday and its values and one that includes family. And then moving to uh, a drama that is historical and uh, about a very important subject and theme, but at the same time is theatrical and musical. And then something very contemporary, very modern, very intimate, very, very direct. Um, and then finishing with a Shakespearean comedy. Mm-hmm. 